Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, hosted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Amy McKechnie. Uh, she's author of the middle grade novel, 10,000 Tries, and we're going to be talking about that as well as her favorite children's book, uh, which is The Tale of Despero by Kate DiCamillo. Uh, but before we get to all that, I'm going to be starting with a brief chat I had with Shane Garver, uh, who's Associate Vice President of Rural Education Programs at Save the Children. And we're going to be talking about summer reading in rural communities and Save the, Children, and Save the Children's partnership with Scholastic. Today I'm speaking with Shane Garver, Associate Vice President of Rural Education Programs at Save the Children, and we're going to be talking about summer reading and rural communities. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Shane. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Uh, first, can you tell me a little bit about what exactly Save the Children is? Save the Children is an international nonprofit organization uh, working all around the world and right here in the U.S. to make sure that kids are protected from harm uh, and have the opportunity to learn. Here in the United States, we particularly work in high-poverty rural communities. These are isolated communities, about 200 or so of them, spread across the U.S., where things like book access uh, and opportunities to participate in high-quality summer programs are few and far between. And I understand that this summer you're going to be partnering with Scholastic uh, to distribute 100,000 books to kids in rural communities nationwide. Can you talk a little bit about how this partnership came about? And that's correct. We've actually partnered with Scholastic going on 25 years now. Uh, just what an outstanding organization committed to getting books into the hands of kids. Uh, I can attest to that personally. I've unloaded semi-truck after semi-truck of books over my time here the last 15 years at Save the Children. And just what a critical role those donations play in helping open up opportunities to kids and families in the communities where we work. Part of what we do at Save the Children is an early childhood home visiting program. And so we know firsthand our staff are in the homes of these families. And it's not uncommon at all, especially upon that first visit, they walk into the home and there are no children's books to be found, not for the little ones in the home, not for the older siblings who might be in elementary school or middle school or even high school. There's just no books. And it's something that, like Scholastic, we at Save the Children are committed to trying to change. Uh, so this donation of 100,000 books this summer is critically important to help closing that gap and meeting that need in these rural communities and really helping to unlock a love of reading for the kids and families that we work with. Uh, we see reading as a way to open doors and windows into the outside world, opportunities and things that these kids could be inspired to grow up and to be. Um, so we see it as a critical component of, of what we do and are just so grateful uh, for this partnership with Scholastic. Because literacy and having book access is so important in many different ways to a child's development. That's absolutely true. And particularly it's, it's not only access to books, but it's access to books that they're interested in, that they're excited about. Uh, as part of the programming that we do, we also do an in-school tutoring program. We run after-school programs and we run summer camps, primarily targeting struggling readers. And one of the things, the, one of the first things that we do with kids is an interest inventory. We find out what are they naturally interested in anyways, and we make sure thanks to partnerships like the one with Scholastic, 
we get books into those kids' hands that are on their reading level, but on content that they are interested in. So they're both reading a book that inspires them, that helps build their confidence, and that is it's about something that's fun to them. I think it's it's that really that connection of both um, inspiring the confidence uh, in their own reading ability that helps foster that continual love of reading and that growth. Now, distributing 100,000 books um, to these various rural communities sounds like a very daunting task. So how does it, how do you go about carrying that out? You know, luckily we have an army of on-the-ground partners in these communities who join in our mission uh, and want to get books into the hands of kids and families. And so this takes uh, this takes format in a number of different ways. Our army of home visitors are out there bringing books into the home with each home visit. Our summer camp leaders are making sure that kids are going home each week uh, with books that they've gotten to pick out uh, you know, from these donations. We're helping to stock school libraries with some of these books. We work in communities where there's just such limited book budgets, even in the school libraries. I often tell the story of one school that we worked in uh, in eastern Kentucky where when we first started working there, I wanted to take their entire library and stick it up on eBay as as antiques. Uh, the books in the library, literally, we had not landed on the moon yet, according to many of them. And so when you're working with kids who are struggling readers and everything is outdated, not on their level, not of interest to them, it's it's challenging. And that's where organizations like Scholastic and Save the Children come in to help, you know, update and provide, you know, current content and things that kids are excited about and want to read. Because yeah, it's so important to get kids to read. You have to find that right book that they'll really want to read. And uh, you touched on this a little bit when you talked about like uh, summer uh, camperships and things like that. Uh, are there other uh, summer opportunities for kids that uh, Save the Children is going to be doing? Uh, absolutely. So in the 200 plus rural communities where we work, uh, we are actively partnering with school systems and community members on the ground to provide opportunities around summer engagement. These are isolated communities without connections to summer camps and museums and libraries and other things for kids to participate in. So we try and bring some of those enrichment opportunities, the reading opportunities, the math opportunities and other things to the kids, to the communities, um, keeping uh, the importance of summer exploration and learning top of mind for them and, and really making it an opportunity they can engage in. So if somebody wanted to get more information about both uh, the, the program with Scholastic and other uh, programs, uh, particularly summer programs or other things as well with Save the Children, uh, how would a person go about doing that? So first, I'd encourage folks to go to savethechildren.org slash USA, and they can find out uh, tips and guidance on how to engage with their own kids uh, over the summertime, ways to make reading fun and engaging for them, and, and other ways to promote learning. More information about the work that we do here in the U.S. as well. The other thing I'd encourage your listeners to do is to go to scholastic.com slash summer and take part in their summer reading challenge. And this is critical because this can unlock participation in this program, can unlock donations to save the children, to get more books into the hands of kids across this country. Well, uh, Shane, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today about uh, getting more kids to read. Well, thank you so much for promoting this. Appreciate it.
My guest today is Amy McKechnie, author of the middle grade novel The Unforgettable Guinevere St. Clair. Her latest middle grade novel is the recently released 10,000 Tries. You can find her website at www.amymckechnie.com. I thank you for joining me today, Amy. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. As I mentioned, your, your most recent book uh, is called 10,000 Tries. Can uh, you talk a little bit of what this book is about? Sure. So I am um, a soccer coach of a co-ed middle school team, and I've been doing it for almost a decade now. And I've got always got this rotating cast of characters and, the, you know, these kids I just learned to really love. And one, well, two years, my son played on the team and he was, he, he's, he was small and his idol was professional soccer player, Lionel Messi. And so I, I just really loved watching. And sometimes it was agonizing actually, because the boys at this age, they just wanted to be bigger, stronger, and faster. And that really kind of, you know, puts you on top of the totem pole in middle school. And at the same time, our really good friend, Eric, whose daughter was also on this team, was diagnosed with ALS. And so we had this really, this, this juxtaposition of, you know, the boys wanting to get bigger, stronger, faster, and this dad losing all of that. And it, and it really made me s- stop and think about, you know, wh- what does it mean to be a man and how might a child of you know, of, of his hero, his, his dad have ALS, how would you react to that? So that kind of launched me into this story, but not wanting to make it too sad. So then we also have this parallel story of golden. That's his name, which gives his friends a lot of things to make fun of (laughs) trying to um, get to the championship game. And so they use I don't know if you're familiar with like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, you can become great at anything, which actually he says does not apply to sports, but I used it for this book. And Golden is is very convinced that if he puts in 10,000 touches, 10,000 hours, they're going to make it to the championship game and his dad's going to be okay. So it's kind of Golden's journey on both on both ends. So it's both a, a sports book, but also a, a personal journey book, and and a, and you, you found a way to combine both of those uh, things, which are, which I guess every sports story also is also a personal journey story, I guess too. I really love a great character-driven story, but um, I think especially in middle grade, you you do need to have a plot, <laughs> and that's that's my hardest that's my hardest thing. Something needs to happen to these characters. Um, but yes, I would say it, there's definitely, there's an inner and outer journey for, for many of the characters. Do you think there's something unique about soccer that makes it particularly um, interesting to write about, particularly for, for middle grade uh, fiction, uh, something in the game itself? Um, for me, well, it's a, it's a game I've always played. It's uh, obviously a team sport. And, you know, I've, I've run track, I've done some individual events, but Soccer, it's so beautiful to me because you, as in met with many team sports, the whole team is responsible for the win and the loss. And it has to get, like like that ball has to get through the whole team before it gets through the goalie's hands. Of course, the goalie always takes it the hardest with a score. But 
it's it's a game I've always played and just the the passing and it's a really beautiful thing too to watch kids who have played a really long time to be able to read their teammates in the field so well that you do talk, but there there's a point too where you you just know exactly what that teammate is going to try to do. And and that's that's really um it just lent itself really well with this story as well. Because it's also about relationships as well. Absolutely. Uh, is there a part of the book you'd like to share? Sure. Um, I'll start it right at the beginning. For every chapter, I have a quote either from a character from the book or this one is from Adrian Correa, who was Messi's coach when he was small. So I have a few professional soccer quotes and then it through sprinkled throughout the book. Okay, this the chapter is called The Back to School Physical. And the quote is, When you saw him, you would think, this kid can't play ball. He's too fragile, too small. But immediately you'd realize that he was born different, that he was a phenomenon, and that he was going to be impressive. Adrian Correa on his first impression of 12-year-old Lionel Messi, soccer phenom. Every time Lionel Messi scores a goal, there's literally a small earthquake, an actual seismic shift. The crowd loves him so much that when he scores, They go completely nuts. They scream, stomp, and jump so hard that the earth actually moves under their feet. Some people call it a footquake, but I like messy quake better. When I dream, I become my idol. The crowd loves me that much. Golden, golden, golden. Lucy passes me the ball, her blonde hair flying. Benny sprints to the corner flag just in case I need him, giving me the assist. The ball is at my feet. I'm the dribbling maestro faking out three defenders. It's sick, man. Three seconds on the clock, left foot plants, right leg swings. Like a rocket, my shot spirals forward, the ball soaring above the goalie's fingertips. The crowd is on their feet, leaning forward, ready to shake the world. Time slows. Just before the ball hits the back of the net, a small chattering squirrel pounces on me. I open my eyes to see the jaws of death. Well, minus the two front teeth, a mere two inches from my face. Your breath smells like a dragon, the squirrel says. Get off, Roma. Golden, mom yells from downstairs. Let's go. My family has yet to recognize the greatness in their midst. When my six-year-old sister doesn't move, I push past her and stumble down the stairs, consoling myself that even Messi, greatest soccer player in the world, probably has to have a yearly physical. I think every kid has that sort of a mix of, uh, uh, you know, thinking of themselves and putting themselves in the place of their or their heroes and then sometimes waking up to uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, yeah. the reality of their lives. <laughs> yes, I, I certainly did. I dreamt of a lot of great things that I was going to do. <laughs> now, I understand uh, just from reading um, your website that your background is in science, correct? Yeah, I went to college. I always I always enjoyed writing, but I went to college and wanted to train athletes. So I um it was hard to find a major like that at that time, about 20 years ago now. So I did a major in in health and human performance and then I started teaching biology. The very next year I moved to human anatomy and physiology and I took a break in the middle of that um, 
to have kids and um, stay home with them for a while, but now I'm back in the classroom. And I, I love it. I just feel like it's so interesting how it has really enhanced my writing. And I, I don't regret that path at all. My first book um, is The Unforgettable Guinevere St. Clair. And that kind of a similar story of an illness, brain. And in fact, I had to do quite a lot of cutting out of, because there was there's too much science. But it certainly has helped me maybe even just feel more confident when I'm talking about you know, something like ALS or something wrong with the brain or even like running. And I'm thinking about the bones and the muscles and the, and the heart and the blood. I don't know that I'll always have human anatomy in every book, but it seems like whenever I write, it starts to come through. And what is it that drew you to middle grade fiction in particular? So the first book I wrote, I just, I couldn't seem to land an agent. It, it was so, so many years and years of querying. So I decided maybe I should write a different book. And so I did. And that was the unforgettable Guinevere St. Clair, although it was called something different. And I wrote it for adults. I, I had a really good friend read it. She's an English teacher. And she said, Amy, you should make this a middle grade novel. And that worked really well because my protagonist was an 11 year old girl. But it was definitely, I kind of wrote it as if she was maybe looking back on her life. Um, Or I I had other examples like The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie by Alan Bradley. That has a 12-year-old-ish female protagonist. So at first I was a little irritated that I couldn't make this an adult novel with that age group or that age of a, of a hero. But as soon as I switched that mindset and looked at it from that lens, I thought, Oh, this is, this is much better. And, um, you know, middle grade has really taken off and the market was hot and it was ready. And as soon as I kind of made that adjustment, I had a much, much more return of investment in terms of querying, like, can we have your first chapter or, you know, just a lot more interest. I really kind of like found like, I found like my groove and then I thought, Oh, I'm going to write another one. And I'll be interested if I, if I stick with it forever. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, uh, apart from 10,000 tries, are there any other upcoming projects you're working on? Yes. It's a younger um, series and it's about six very naughty children and their nanny and their nanny happens to be a dog and it's been very different than my first two books. And I would love to have four of them, like one for each season. And it's been such a joy. With my first two books, they're very, um, I don't know that I would say heavy, but they have a more serious subject. And there's a lot of emotion. And I, I think even when I write them, there's, there's, I laugh, but I also cry. And I think with this next series, um, there's there's only a lot of laughing. So it's been really, really fun. As I say, it's hard to write a serious book with a dog as a nanny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, the book you uh, picked uh, for today is one of your particular uh, favorite children's books, is uh, The Tale of Despero, which was written by Kate DiCamillo. 
I always have to point out is one of my particular favorite writers. And she wrote this particular novel in uh, 2003. And for readers who haven't had the chance yet to read Tale of Despero, you talk a little bit of what this book is about. Sure. Um, it was so fun to revisit this book. It, I, I hadn't read it for a while and I just reread it. And um, it was just as special. It's about an undersized mouse. He's the runt of the litter and he is different than all his, his brothers and sisters. And he's, he's an embarrassment to his mouse family. And he discovers a book and it starts with once upon a time and his, even his mouse brothers and sisters think it's so ridiculous that he's not eating the book. He's, he's reading the book. And at one point he sees the princess and he immediately falls in love. The princess is captured um, by a servant girl and a rat and Despero, our hero sets off on a quest to rescue the princess. It's so lovely. <laughs> and uh, this is a book that has uh, a, a number of points of view and different characters, but uh, I want to talk about uh, some of them. I want to start, actually, with Despero, who is, of course, the, the main character and in the title. Uh, so this 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 tiny mouse uh, who is a very uh, active mind, what is it about Despero that makes him such a, a compelling character uh, that we just want to stay with and find out what's going to happen to him? Um, I think there's something I've, you know, I've always, always heard and I like to read about the underdog. I once read this really, or maybe I heard it on a podcast. Um, it might've been Malcolm Gladwell again, but he was saying how we, especially in America, love to root for the underdog, but we have to kind of know that they're going to win. <laughs> and that was such an interesting point. Um, I think in a book, you know your hero is going to um, succeed in the end. But DiCamillo does such a great job of how can this this small, undersized runt of a mouse possibly rescue a human princess? So it really she sets the scene so 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 wonderfully that you know every her chapters are short. And every single single chapter, you want to turn the page to find out what happens next. And she sets it up really well, where you feel sorry for the mouse, but you also, at least for me, I found myself just relating to wanting to be, wanting to matter to somebody. You know, the one word that I, I think of with Despero is that he's a very, he's, I don't want to say he's a romantic character, but he is aromantic you know, and the way he oh, views yes. the word. Yeah. Yes, he's very romantic. And yes, they talk about he just fell instantly in love with a princess. <laughs> it's just great. Now, one of the other compelling characters, but in a very different way than Despero, uh, or, or intrigues me, is uh, Migri Sao, um, uh, who is interesting, but in a very uh, different way. And not exactly hero, not exactly the villain. Um, she sort of is in her own category. Can you talk a little bit about who Migri Sao is? Yes, she. Yes, she was very interesting for me to revisit again too. There's nothing. Um, she's written in a way where you don't find much redeeming value in even the way she's described in her appearance, and yet 
you empathize so deeply because you see she almost never had a chance in life right from the start. Very much like Despero. Um, you know, both of them, both of them are, are kind of tragic, tragic characters. And you, but you also see the longing, her very misguided longing of being tricked by the rat. Is it Roscuro? <laughs> of, oh, sure. You, you can just trade clothes with her. You can wear the crown and then you can be the princess. And he kind of tricks her um, into taking the princess to the dungeon and you, yeah, your kind, your heart kind of breaks for her because she's um, she's described as is just not. She doesn't know what's going on, and and her and her poor ears. They're, there's she's been clomped upside the head so many times that they're described as little like puffs of cauliflower. And you, I think, definitely by the end, I don't. You don't like her throughout it, but you can empathize and because you know what happened to her, you understand her. And the one thing she wants more than anything is to be the princess. Yes, yes. And the the other character, uh, is you mentioned him, uh, Roscuro, uh, uh, the rat, who's a, essentially the villain of the piece, but he's a bit more than that, too. You know, he's not just a, a, an evil character. He actually, um, he's the way he is for a reason, <laughs> I guess you could say. Oh. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and for him, it's a, it's all about. I believe uh, he's he, it's uh, something happens to him. And he's searching for the light or something that he can't that was taken away from him. Yes. So yes, he's he's kind of he turns wicked, but again, you understand where he's coming from because he saw the light, but it was you're just what you said. It was taken away from him, and he's longing for that, and because he's had all of his hopes and dreams taken away he's turned bitter and wicked <laughs> but again yeah you're right we have this villain but you i think this is what she does so so wonderfully in her writing is you kind of under these characters are so full and well-rounded what i think interesting too is that all three of them uh, they have this common trait each each of them want something they're told by everyone else they can't have that like despero wants to be with the princess princess p and they say you can't humans you can't be near humans but Grisa wants to be princess if it says no and roscuro wants the light in their tone uh, and yet in the end in a certain way they do kind of find the things they're looking for despite everybody telling them that these are impossible things yeah it, it's it's wrapped up really really well and satisfying also realistically and yeah, the, and even the king, you know, the reason they can't have soup <laughs> and why there's this this great, great war between the, the rats and the people uh, for obvious reasons, but also because the soup is banned because it falls in the queen's soup and how the heart, the king is heartbroken and how Despero kind and Roscuro kind of brings everything full circle so that there, there's some healing with the whole royal family. And and for me, and I don't want to say what it is because I'd like people to read it, but uh, how Miggery Sow ends up and what she finds and how she sort of gets the things that she wants, although in an unexpected way, I found particularly touching, where she sort of gets to be the princess. Yes, agree, agree. 
Now, the structure of this book is interesting. It's actually quite complicated if you think about it. It uh, goes back and forth with multiple characters, not even just these three characters. It goes back and forth in time. And yet, I wouldn't say if you read the book, it's not difficult. It's not a hard book to read, it, despite all these things going on. I'm wondering, how does this, all this jumble of things, how does it lend to the story? And what is Kate DeMille, I mean, this is why Kate DeMille impressed me so much. How does she pull it off? All this, it seems on the surface, if you you mapped it out, it'll look very complicated, but it doesn't read that way. Yeah, I am always so intrigued by an author's process. And and this one, you're right, It's the chapters are short. She I love how she can convey so much with so little. I tend to overwrite. So that's, you know, definitely an, an, an author goal. And yes, I would love to see how did she map it out? How, how you map out multiple points of view with a middle grade novel. That's very intimidating to me. How you can have many, many different points of view and it's, but it's just one story that all t- all blends together so well. It's really, really well done. It seems so simple the way she does it. <laughs> it seems so simple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I also found interesting is that it, it's sort of a parody in a way of the quest. Uh, you know, and what you know, there's a certain sort of satirical edge to it, but it, at the same time, it's also very sincere. And I always find that characteristic of Kate Camillo. There's a, always a certain absurdity in some of her characters and the things that they go to, but there's never a there's never any spirit of meanness to it. Even though there's a satirical edge, she's there's never any and there's never any sort of mean edge to it. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Even the rats. You know, even all of her characters, and that's, I think that's what she does so well is you, you have empathy for all of the characters and it's not, I don't know how you would classify this book as I, I wouldn't consider it fantasy, even though you have, you know, animals talking and having feelings and it's, it just, it, it feels very realistic to me because I, I'm so into the story even from the point of view of, you know, the princess versus Mickey Sal versus a rat versus a mouse. How do you think? Uh, I'm I'm telling you, you know, cause we're both looking at this as adults. How do you think most? What do you think most children uh, take away from this book when they read it themselves or hear it? Um, I remember reading it to my kids, and I remember the wide-eyed. You can see the brain working <laughs> as as they listen to a quest and being small themselves, I think it's just, it's so relatable as well. A very small person on an impossible quest. Like I said, I mean, she just ends each chapter. So you have to know what's going to happen next. Um, And even using like spools of thread and a needle for a sword. It's, it's, so creative as well, which I, of course, is so, so appealing to a child. And then you're right. It's so funny with this, like the suit, but it's not stupid. It, it just makes so much sense. <laughs> so they, they, they see themselves in it, even though they might not be able to articulate why it's uh, so appealing to them. But you get, like, you're right. You know, you can always tell when you're reading a book to a child, if they're enjoying the book or not, they're, they're, they're pretty upfront about letting you know that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, 
even the first um, in the first chapter, the second chapter, yeah, the, the the first page where the father mouse holds up one small mouse and he says, "This is only there is only this one." He said, "The others are dead." And I it caught me by surprise because I, you know, it had been a while since I'd read it, but it seemed it seems so harsh that you're talking about life and death. And so she doesn't skirt away from those issues either. I mean, there, there were other parts where I, where I thought, wow, that feels very almost graphic. And yet, and yet it, it works so well. I think it's a, a mark of a good uh, middle grade writer. Cause you know, um, cause I think you can talk about a lot of different things uh, with kids up to a certain uh, point and, um, and, and, and I think that's perfectly fine, but it does take a certain touch to be able to do that really well. Yes, yes, it, yeah, yeah. And she did it really well, and it it feels very, like I said, realistic, even though it's um, you know about a mouse. <laughs> Is there a passage from the book you'd like to share? Sure. Even you know, I was so struck even by the very first quote, the way that D. Camillo writes as well she's talking to the reader and she starts with the world is dark and light is precious. Come closer, dear reader. You must trust me. I am telling you a story right away. She totally has me eating out of her hand. (laughs) I don't know that every reader likes to be, I think that some might feel like even um, she does that a few times as she ends the chapter, she'll say now, dear reader, some people might I may maybe think that it breaks the scene up, but for me, it, it just made me go with her into the story even further. Yeah, it's a, t- a technique that may not work with any story, but for this particular story, it just seems to fit very well. Yeah, it really did. Probably because it has a certain fairy tale quality uh, to it, so that sort of um, old time uh, listen reader seems to just uh, fit very well with that. Yes, yes. And even, you know, <laughs> the second page, she they talk about the mother who's who's very vain and she's French and she says, "Get me my makeup bag. She's just given birth to all these babies who have died except for the runt." And she says, "My eyes are a fright." <laughs> and it like that made me laugh out loud. So you've got this tragedy, but you also you laugh too. To balance it out, yeah. Uh, well, uh, Amy, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time uh, today to talk to me both about uh, your own book, 10,000 Tries, and for uh, talking to me about Tale of Desperate. I always like to talk about Kate DiCamillo books, so I really do appreciate it. So thank you for taking the time for all of that and talking to me about those books today. Thank you so much. And I hope anyone who listens to this reads Desperate. It is a gem of a book. It won the the Newberry, and so you know it's going to be good, but it's, it's, it's a gem. It's a keeper. And thank you for having me, Jody. That was really fun. You can find Amy's website at www.amymckechnie.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodyleemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter 
at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Reading.